This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 37 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get into the episode, don't forget to check out our website, firedog.us. That's where you'll find every episode along with some articles from people across the fire service. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you listen. Our guests today are leading researchers in firefighter safety and health initiatives. Collectively, their research is advancing what we know about firefighter exposure to carcinogens on structural fires and the physiological demands while working in gear. The first guest introduced in the episode is Dr. Kenny Fent. Dr. Fent is currently the head of the National Firefighter Registry Program at CDC NIOSH which is a new congressionally mandated program to monitor cancer outcomes and occupational risk factors among firefighters in the United States. He spent over a decade studying firefighters' exposures and health effects and published over 70 articles and reports summarizing his findings. His research findings have provided evidence to support a variety of control measures to reduce carcinogenic exposures in the fire service, many of which have been widely adopted. The second guest introduced is Dr. Gavin Horn. Dr. Horn is a research engineer with the Underwriters Laboratory Fire Safety Research Institute. Dr. Horn's research interests include firefighter and fire investigator, health and safety, first responder technology development, material testing, and non-destructive evaluation. Prior to joining the Underwriters Laboratory team, he served as the director of the Illinois Fire Service Institute Research Programs at the University of Illinois for 15 years. He's also served as a firefighter, apparatus engineer, and fire investigator with the Savoy Fire Department. Dr. Horn holds a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, as well as a Master of Engineering in Fire Protection Engineering from the University of Maryland. He's published over 80 peer-reviewed journal manuscripts and given presentations at meetings, conferences, and symposia around the world. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kenny Fent and Dr. Gavin Horn. So again, I, I really appreciate each of you coming on the podcast, joining us. So I, uh, I ran into both of your studies. Well, I saw your names at least when I was uh, going through some, going through college uh, for my fire science management degree. Um, and so, you know, I, I had your name, I, I came across a whole lot of studies with each of your names and, uh, you know, I kept seeing the same name over and over and real interesting stuff and real applicable to what, you know, I do, of course, as a firefighter. And so I invited you guys on to have like a higher level insight into, you know, what we're exposed to during emergencies, uh, particular structural structural fires. It seems to be what was covered in what I saw, at least. Um, and so what we can do to reduce those exposures and, you know, maybe some of the things that um, that you guys have been exposed to. But before we get into all of that, could uh, each of you introduce yourself, you know, tell us who you are, what you do, where you work. So my name is Kenny Fent. I'm a research industrial hygienist with the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH. Um, I got my education, my degree in environmental science and engineering from the University of North Carolina. Um, and I'm a certified industrial hygienist. Um, I've been with NIOSH since 2008. And I've spent most of my career conducting exposure assessment research on firefighters and other first responders. Um, so a lot of the work that I've done was conducted um, in collaboration with the Illinois Fire Service Institute and Underwriters Laboratories or UL, and in particular with uh, Dr. Gavin Horn, um, who we'll hear from in just a second. 
Um, I'm also a commander in the US Public Health Service where I've responded to domestic and global emergencies, including Ebola in West Africa. Um, and then most recently, the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, I'm currently leading the National Firefighter Registry Program at NIOSH, which came about through an act of legislation, the Firefighter Cancer Registry Act of 2018. And, uh, and I think, you know, you've probably seen or read um, a lot of the work that NIOSH has done, um, which extends beyond just research. Um, you know, NIOSH also uh, approves respirators and publishes the NIOSH pocket guide and conducts firefighter fatality investigations. So we, we do a lot of work with the fire service and, uh, you know, hope to continue that work, um, you know, in the future. Yeah, all these things you mentioned, I, like I was mentioning to Dr. Horn earlier, it, we could have you on for multiple episodes, it seems, with with all the stuff that you guys are involved in and got your hands in. So, again, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Dr. Horn, is it okay to call you Dr. Horn, or what, what would you guys prefer? Just call me Gavin. Gavin, Gavin Perfect. Roger that. Okay. That's right. All right. Well, it, it, it's always hard to follow Kenny. Uh, I've got a much shorter bio, but uh, I, I'm, I'm actually a research engineer with the UL Fire Safety Research Institute. I know you all are probably quite familiar with the acronyms, but uh, when we talk about this, we'll refer to FSRI, that's the UL Fire Safety Research Institute. Um, and I also maintain a senior research scientist appointment at the University of, University of Illinois Fire Service Institute. And uh, we'll, we'll commonly refer to that as IFSI throughout this, this conversation. Um, prior to moving west to, to Oregon here a few years back uh, and joining the uh, FSRI team, I served as the director of research programs at, at IFSI for about 15 years, as well as a uh, firefighter, apparatus engineer, and fire investigator with the Savoy Fire Department, which is located just south of Champaign, Illinois. So honored to be here uh, to, to chat with you all and uh, to discuss some of the research that we've done both at IFSI and FSRI and in particular in concert with Kenny's team. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, sir, also for coming on. So I'd like to get into a little bit of the studies. I mean, that's kind of why I called you on and uh, I'd, I'd like to, you know, know why. Uh, I guess they were first, I want to know why they were uh, initiated. Uh, you know, I can pretty much deduce why, but, you know, I'd like to have you guys explain that. Um, and I know that uh, they're largely exposed to what fire, largely um, cover what firefighters are exposed to during structural fires and uh, the methods of decontamination, which is uh, really what I focused on in my specific class that I was telling you about earlier. But uh, and what are the most effective among those uh, de decontamination methods? Um, so I don't know who wants to start first, but can you guys, you know, wherever you think is the appropriate place to start with those studies, why they happened and all that. Um, I'm, I'm happy to start. I, I can give you a little bit of um, background on how I, you know, came to become interested in the fire service. Um, you know, unlike Gavin, I don't have a background in firefighting, um, but it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, and my interest really started uh, back in 2008 when I joined NIOSH um, in the health hazard evaluation program. And we actually received a request from a local fire department um, to evaluate firefighters' exposures during vehicle fire responses. Um, and so that local department had acquired some old vehicles for training purposes. And uh, we set up a variety of um, air samplers. Um, and not surprisingly, we found high exposures to a variety of combustion byproducts, including benzene and uh, formaldehyde. And we published a report in 2010 
Uh, but that project is really what got me um, more curious about firefighters' exposures. Um, and then that, in addition to um, a study that NIOSH was sort of in the middle of at that time, um, which is the largest firefighter cancer cohort study to date uh, by Dr. Doug Daniels. And that study found increased rates of um, you know, cancer diagnoses and deaths and municipal firefighters from three large departments compared to the general population. Um, and so, you know, after, you know, doing that study, um, looking at vehicle fires, and then couple that with this study that's finding increased risk of cancer, um, that really sort of precipitated us looking more in depth at some of the exposures that firefighters have. Um, so, you know, inhalation exposure to combustion byproducts was thought to contribute, you know, to some of the increased cancer risk, but the fire service and scientists had a lot of questions regarding the dermal exposure route. And especially because of the increased use of SCBA um, and the fact that firefighters were coming back from fire incidents covered in soot. And so that led me and NIOSH to conduct a dermal exposure study on firefighters. And to do that study, we needed to partner with a training academy, somebody with access to, you know, firefighters and a place to do, um, you know, controlled fires. And that's really how we got connected to IFSI and, and Gavin. Um, so, you know, this study and, and really all the studies since have really focused on understanding the impact of firefighting on, you know, on the cardiovascular system, as well as the risk of, of cancer. Well, that's interesting. You brought up that point of, of the cancer study, because it was one of my follow-up points. You know, I assumed that the, the large reason for this was prevalence of cancer in firefighters. And the particular study you mentioned, I remember coming across it. I mean, it, the data goes back to, I want to say, what, the 50s? Is that right? Um, right. The, the cancer cohort study that Dr. Daniels conducted, it was from 1950 to, I think it was 2009 is when that cohort yeah, ended. I do remember seeing that, yeah. And pretty significant when compared to the general population, which is not surprising considering that, you know, we, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s we running in with a with a trench coat and you know some boots into an ideal age so um right yeah but anyways gavin anything else on that yeah i'll just just to follow up on on some of kenny's points you know i i've i've really had the uh, incredible fortune to work in in two organizations over the past uh almost 18 years that had a central mission of, of really helping the fire service and helping to do the job effectively as well as safely and, and in a healthy manner. So a lot of the research and boots on the ground applications that we've done have really focused around those projects, the understanding what we can do to improve health, improve safety, but not just to do studies that sit on an academic bookshelf, but to translate them so that there is the ability to, to put in play some of the findings that we have had. So when we first started working in this area, and, and you'll go back to 2004 when I started IFSI, a lot of our, our focus was on the cardiovascular strain and heat stress of firefighting, much of what you just discussed, you know, back in the day before the bunker style gear, long coats and boots, you know, there was um, not as much protection from the smoke, but there was also a lot more area for air to, to circulate around. And so there was concern when we made that transition into the bunker gear, 
it would improve. And the main goal for that was largely around burn protection, right? If you think back to that point, obviously now we know more about some of the, the exposure protection it might provide, but with increase in burn protection, how might that impact the heat stress for those firefighters that are working in there? And that's really where a lot of the work that, that Kenny and myself have worked with Dr. Denise Smith from Skidmore College, who's really been one of the, the people who's driven some of that research forward. But we're also looking at things like slips, trips, and falls and, and how that extra encapsulation affects biomechanics and movement on, on the fire ground. And as we change the gear and the tools and the equipment that we, we wear and we use, it can impact the tactics that we use. So applying water in different ways, getting farther into the structure, doing certain things from, from a search perspective. What are the trade-offs and the risks and the benefits from each of those particularly for the occupants who could be trapped within that structure, but also for the firefighter and for the mission itself. And, and likewise, FSRI um, has, has had a long history of focusing on these fire ground and training ground environments and, and tactics for the fire ground and how we can help improve instruction for the fire service to help make the job more effective and efficient. So the two organizations have, have, long been been linked from a research perspective but it was it was about 12 years ago when we first had the chance to start collaborating with kenny in in his team at niosh it was really a great opportunity to to bring together all of these organizations niosh with their exposure capabilities ifsi understanding the heat stress and the cardiovascular strain and, and the great research fsri had done and really understanding the environment and measuring firefighters doing their job, uh, we were able to bring all that expertise together uh, to start really diving into some of these concerns about occupational cancer in, in the fire service. And if you think back to 2010, 2011, you know, the conversation around cancer in the fire service is not nearly as robust as it is today. Um, you can really look back to that time frame, and, and and the research on the topic was very much in its infancy. And, and there's don't get me wrong, there's a whole lot more that we have left to do, and, and tons of questions that need to be answered. Um, but you look at what has occurred since 2010 in terms of the breadth of research and, and how deep we've gone in certain areas. It's really been a renaissance in terms of, of research that's been available. Um, and, and these are being conducted not just within our team, but, but research studies conducted across the country uh, and around the world to address this issue. Uh, and in the last piece that I'd add on this is it, it's not just, as I said before, theoretical research. Um, one of the things that, that I think I'm most proud of our collaboration with Kenny's team is, is again, getting that word out, the research to practice, you know, working with some of the fire service publications and the presentations and, and some of the support organizations to turn this research into policy, uh, to help people understand how to select different types of gear, help manufacturers understand the trade-offs and some of the design of their gear. And what you'd mentioned earlier, decontamination, you know, 10 years ago, there weren't buckets on fire grounds with soapy water and people working towards decontamination just wasn't something that we did. And, and now that's something that's become very common in terms of understanding how we can decontaminate firefighters and do it in ways that can be applicable from the smallest rural fire department to some of the largest fire departments in the country. Yeah. A lot of great points brought up right there. Um, and, and you made me, 
it, it jogged my memory. I was talking to Chris before we uh, before we logged on here. There was a uh, the webinar that I attended about a month ago now, and I wish I remembered the name because I hate kind of referencing things and not, not remembering names. But he was talking about the developments with PPE, and one of the biggest things that he had mentioned is, uh, you know, of course, it's incremental change across time. It's really hard to make any big changes. But the biggest thing that they're focusing on um, from his perspective, and again, I, don't, I can't remember where he worked, what his name was, but was the ergonomics and, and the comfortability and the and so you, you touched on a really important point is the cardiovascular strain or the physiological strain on firefighters as a result of having this heavy burdensome gear that was intended to protect us from heat. Um, and so that's another element now that, that uh, is probably just as important, right? There's a lot of cardiac arrest um, among firefighters, especially during training. And really that's the number one killer of us. I think line of duty death is, cardi- uh, is cardiac arrest, but another important thing. So I'd like to hit on that if we can, but first, could we talk about Actually, Chris, do you have anything before we move forward? Yeah, well, to your point there, it feels like there's kind of been a pivot, right? Where for for years we've talked about, um, you know, half of our line of duty deaths in the American Fire Service are cardiac related. But, you know, thinking of of cancer as a line of duty disease, do you feel like the the numbers are saying that that's the new leading cause of, of line of duty deaths for firefighters? Yeah, and if I if I could jump in real quick on that, when we look at the way statistics are reported, are, are generated and reported, um, there's a lot of different ways that we can look at some of the numbers. And traditionally, when um, the the line of duty deaths are, as they're reported through NFPA or USFA, often focus on something to be tied back to a specific incident, and and that's where we look at the numbers. Where you'll often see somewhere between forty to fifty percent each year of those duty-related deaths are related to cardiac events, uh, you know, sudden cardiac events of, of some type or, or another. Uh, it, and as we said, it's only been recent that we've started to get our hands around some of the statistics related to the occupational exposure and, and how that translates into to cancer and, and the risk for occupational cancer, I should say. So in this case, we're really looking at them as, as both. Two of the most important sources of risk um, and and the ways that firefighters are succumbing to some of their occupational exposures. So we want to look at those both in hand with each other. And, and one of the things in our study in particular, we're trying to look at them together, not independent of each other. If we can provide a holistic perspective, then we can start to balance some of those risks through research. Yeah. PPE is just one example. It, we, we've looked at changing personal protective equipment for a lot of different reasons. Again, it started off by thermal protection, but that had implications for heat stress. There's work now at, at how other ways we can change PPE to, to continue to make it a little bit tighter. So there's less gaps, less interface locations where some of the, the soot and the far ground particulate can get into the body. But as you do things like that, there are some other consequences to those design changes. It can affect how the gear moves, how comfortable it is, your ergonomics, uh, as well as the, the ability to, to um, transfer heat from the body, which is, is done through the skin in the human body. So this is why we try to look at these holistically in order to see if we change things from one direction, how does it impact the other? Um, and that's just one example. But great points. These these are both issues that are top of the line in the fire service of concern for for health. I don't know if you, either of you are familiar with Gordon Graham. Um, he's a pretty 
pretty famous figure within the public safety um, realm. But he mentions gray, uh, black swans and gray rhinos, those problems lying in wait that are right in front of your face that you don't see. And it's easy to look at cardiac arrest and say, well, I can see that he died of cardiac arrest on duty. It's harder to see that the uh, contaminant exposure on a structural fire you know, is killing us 30, 40, 50 years down the road. Uh, right. It's one of those gray rhinos that are set, sitting right in front of you that you don't see. So if we could, uh, if, if nobody has anything else on that, I, I'd like to dive into some of the significant findings, um, particularly with the uh, fire ground exposure to contaminants. Um, and, and maybe, um, Gavin, if we could talk about the cardiovascular um, findings too. I, I don't know. You know, I, I saw that you guys used a whole lot of instruments. There's different instruments in each study, and some of them didn't work, I saw in a couple of cases, which I appreciate the transparency there. That was fantastic transparency. But, um, you know, I know there was like thermo um, sensors on some some of the studies that I read, and I wonder, I imagine there was probably heart rate uh, monitors and things of that such, maybe even to to collect how much perspiration there is. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't want to get into that because I don't know what I'm talking about really. But um, but if we could, uh, Kenny, could you talk to us about some of the significant findings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just to touch on what you said, I mean, we've definitely learned um, by doing all these studies just how difficult it is to do research on firefighters. You know, I, I like to say that uh, it turns out it's really hard to sample fire um, you know, apparently it's very, very hot and it tends to just uh, destroy our sampling equipment, <laughs> but we, we've adapted and we've made it work. Um, so like I said, we started by looking at dermal exposure. Um, and so one of our uh, first studies, or I guess the first study in collaboration with um, IFSI, uh, we wanted to look at uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs on firefighter skin. Um, especially uh, in the neck region. And the PAHs are a class of compounds that are produced during incomplete combustion that include several known or probable carcinogens. Um, and we postulated that the neck uh, was a region of concern because of the knit hoods, perhaps not providing um, adequate protection against fine particulate like PAHs. And so that study was really the first one to highlight the dermal exposure route um, for the neck region um, and, and actually led to some manufacturers that started to do research and development on particle blocking hoods, uh, which are now commercially available um, pretty much everywhere. And then following that study, um, we did a more comprehensive evaluation invol involving coordinated attack of controlled residential fires. Um, and again, we, we looked at dermal exposure, um, but we also evaluated the contamination of turnout gear and the effectiveness of skin cleansing wipes and gross on-scene decontamination. Um, and then we coupled that with urinary and breath measurements to assess the biological uptake of some of those contaminants. Um, so that was an important um, addition to that study is we really wanted to look at the biological monitoring and I would say that that's probably, um, you know, the most significant study that we've been involved in, um, at least in terms of having really impactful findings. Um, so we found contamination on the neck, hands, turnout jackets, and gloves. Um, we found that commercial baby wipes, which, you know, super inexpensive and available everywhere, um, were able to remove a median of 54% of the PAHs from skin. 
we found that gross decon using dish soap and scrubbing with water was able to remove a median of 85% of pHs from the outside of the turnout gear. Um, we found that airborne dermal and biological exposures were related to job assignments, where attack and search firefighters were the most exposed, followed by overhaul and then exterior operation crews. Um, you know, perhaps not surprising, but we were, you know, putting numbers behind some of the uh, um, postulations. And we characterized the off-gassing of contaminated turnout gear. And so those findings, you know, along with a lot of other corroborating research that, um, that Gavin mentioned, have really made significant differences in the fire service. Um, you know, like Gavin mentioned, I mean, it's changed a lot just within the last 10 years. And, you know, today it's not uncommon to see firefighters using skin wipes or perf performing gross decon or bagging their gear before riding back to the, to the station. Um, and I'd like to think that, you know, our research, um, you know, had some um, impact on, uh, on seeing those, those interventions implemented. Yeah, I, I can say from a, from a perspective of a guy on the floor, right, a firefighter on the floor uh, of one of, the, one of those departments, um, you know, some of the more progressive departments are doing exactly that. Two sets of uh, ensembles. Um, we actually, you know, if let's say you bought a thousand Nomex hoods, you know, you can't, you can't go out and get, you know, brand new Nomex hoods and they last a pretty long time. So two issued Nomex hoods. So if you go and, and you're into an IDLH, then you, you throw the other one to, to the wash and you put, you get the new one, you know, so little things like that. And then of course the uh, decontamination with soapy water and stuff like that. Um, so there are, those measures are, you know, incrementally being implemented and, you know, there's a, there's a change management with our culture with that as well. Um, and some departments are better than others, but as a whole in the American fire service, it's a big change management and your studies are most definitely helping. Um, one point I wanted to bring up that I remember reading, uh, was that you're, there's actually still an exposure hazard even away from the scene. So I, I walk away as a firefighter, I exit the IDLH, I walk away from the scene to a staging area where I think I'm safe and you're actually still being exposed because the gear itself um, is con it's contaminated and off-gassing. And so that can, um, you know, accumulate into, into your skin, uh, onto your skin and into your pores. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's really two routes that we're interested in. The, the skin is one and inhalation is the other. Um, you know, after, after firefighting, often, at least historically, often what firefighters would do is they, you know, they take off their SCBA, of course, um, maybe open up their jacket, uh, depending on the weather, and, and, you know, continue to work. And that gear will continue to off-gas for a period of time, our study found within about, you know, 45 minutes or so, a lot of the VOCs will have evaporated, but, you know, some of the semi-volatiles will still be there and will evaporate more slowly. Um, and then you can imagine if you go into, uh, you know, the fire apparatus and you're all closed up and sitting together, that um, it sort of concentrates within that enclosed space um, or back at the station. Um, and so that all of those are potential inhalation exposures that you may not anticipate. And then the dermal exposure route, you know, uh, some of those contaminants, I mean, we're, we're starting to see uh, certainly visual evidence, I'm sure firefighters as well, that a lot of the contamination is transferred just during the doffing process. 
right? And so, especially the hands, and then you're touching other parts of your body. And once you get those contaminants on your body, um, you know, depending on the type of chemicals, I mean, they can absorb pretty quickly through the skin. Um, and that's another reason why to do the skin cl cleansing at the fire scene, but then also why it's important to shower as quickly as possible. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on the, the doffing aspect as well. Um, you know, that, that's one of the pieces as we're seeing changes in the gear that, that we're wearing in the fire ground. Uh, the whole intent of some of those changes is to reduce the amount of, of soot and contaminants that get on the skin during the firefight. Um, but some of the studies, we, we actually started just anecdotally looking at this. Where were we getting some of this contamination onto the firefighters' bodies? And, and we noticed during the doffing process, someone might have completely uh, protected neck with some of these new hoods that don't allow uh, contamination to pass through. But then if you pull it down around your neck, all of that soot that was on the outside is now on the inside. And then it comes back over the head, which is a traditional way that we have always, always done that. I mean, we're always walking around with the hood around the neck. Um, so, but changing, looking at that process, not just the personal protective equipment, but the process of putting that equipment on and off. Some of those administrative controls can actually change the deposition. So, uh, we started looking that qualitatively in just last year, I published a paper that, uh, that showed the difference in the amount of contamination that got to the neck uh, can be very important, significant increases when having a, a traditional doffing method as opposed to something that's closer to a hazmat style of doffing where it doesn't come in contact with the skin itself. So again, these are things that we're iterating. We learned a little bit more and we have improvements in the gear. And then as we start putting those into place, we research that and find that there's other things that we can do. So we're, we're incrementally moving our way towards uh, a reduction in, in some of those risks. Are you finding certain types of cancers, you know, correspond to, you know, whether it's a dermal exposure versus a, an inhalation exposure? Are there, um, you know, there are certain types of cancer that are more prevalent. What's the, the research show, you know, in the way that those cancers relate to the type of exposures? I'll let you take that one, Kenny. <laughs> that is, that's a really difficult uh, question to answer. It's an important question to try to answer. Um, but I don't think we have enough data to, to know, you know, what the, what route of exposure is contributing and to which type of cancer. Um, and in some ways it may not matter because, you know, once the compounds get into the body, they're circulated throughout your, your circulatory system and, and can be absorbed into different tissues and organs. Um, you know, one, one place where it probably does matter is when, when you talk about lungs, lung cancer, um, you know, the inhalation route is probably going to be more important just because, uh, you know, it's, it's a direct route to the respiratory system. Um, another one would be mesothelioma, which we know is elevated in firefighters. And that has been linked directly to, uh, inhalation exposure of asbestos. Uh, but for some of the other cancers that we're seeing like kidney cancer and, you know, um, um, like uh, colorectal cancer and some of those, you know, it's, it's, it may not be as important the route as it is just the, the amount and frequency of exposure and the type of exposures. Uh, 
one point I want to bring up before I forget is uh, I don't know how much um, how much discussion has been had on the risk within a fire station, like the risk the risk within the vehicle stall bay and the um, diesel exhaust specifically, or the you know the exhaust of the vehicles. Have you guys came across anything like that, or or talked about it, or studied it? Because we're exposed to that probably more often than we are you know, a structural fire, starting up the trucks every morning and, and walking around a vehicle apparatus bay with limited ventilation and all that. Yeah, that's an area where we have not touched our studies specifically on, but there is another body of research out there. Uh, and, and again, when we think about controls for the fire service, what we can do to reduce the risk, we tend to focus on the fire ground or on the training scenarios, those exposures there. But it's absolutely true that some of those can come back to the station with you. Uh, the study that Kenny mentioned about off-gassing in the old days when gear would be doffed and thrown into the, the cab and you'd ride back to the station with all the upper, all the, that um the volatile organic compounds off-gassing from that gear. But the other things, the other contamination that is on that gear can then wipe off. This is one of the reasons we're really interested in and the surface contamination because that can be tracked back. It can then rub off on the apparatus, on the seats, go back to the station and then cross-contaminate stations. And, and we've seen that from a number of compounds, some that, that we've talked about here already, but also things like flame retardants. Uh, another study that fairly recently was published was looking at the flame retardants that are in the materials that are burning in a fire that get released into the air that then deposit onto the gear that get onto the firefighter's skin and into the body. And we eventually find them inside the body. One of the papers that Kenny and, and Alex Mayer and his team just recently published has really been able to show that link. And there's been also uh, other studies have shown increase of flame retardants in the dust at fire stations compared to other locations. And that's one mechanism where that can be tracked back to the station. And there's other compounds that are of interest that, that we're finding the same thing, where it appears that the gear is bringing it back and can contaminate the apparatus, can contaminate the station. Um, and, and diesel exhaust, as you mentioned, is, is obviously a concern. Uh, most Obviously, in the fire station doing truck checks, if there is no uh, exhaust capture or some sort of mitigation system, but also on the fire ground. I mean, think about a, an engineer who might be sitting there right there, the apparatus apparatus operator, or even working, uh, you know, uh, an accident along uh, an interstate where there's going to be a lot of truck traffic. So there's a lot of different possible routes or possible exposure sources for the fire service. And there's a lot of research that's trying to, to link all those together and to figure out what are the best things that we can do to, to reduce those as well as healthy lifestyle. It's not really something that our, our studies focus on, but understanding that on, on top of all of these things that can reduce our exposure to contaminants, it matters, uh, fitness, sleep, eating, all of those sorts of things that, that we can control can also reduce some of those risks. If we want to look at this as kind of a, a holistic entirety. Yeah. A lot of those issues are around us and by us every day. And, and it's an inherently risky job, right? I mean, it's, uh, and I'm sure you guys have that discussion all the time. It's an inherently risky business and being around diesel exhaust and you can't, I think, um, but a lot of, you know, truck manufacturers, um, when I'm talking about vehicles specifically, are moving in the direction of clean cab uh, initiative. I know that that some of the trucks are being uh, designed specifically for that purpose, clean cab trucks. 
um, with enough room in the compartments to be able to fit uh, contaminated gear and you know and then of course procedurally you have to you know iron out your procedures like hey before you get into the cab this is what you should do we don't want to you know a dirty firefighter quote unquote getting into the cab and the next shift comes on and you have the same problem and that person's being exposed then of course walking into the the bunk room to the kitchen to wherever you go um i don't know exactly where i was going with that but uh yeah the, there's uh it's it's all around us right you got anything chris yeah well, I, I guess to that that point on clean cabs there's a whole spectrum right i guess of of initiatives from uh, maybe just on the way back to the firehouse from the fire don't have the gear in the cab with you right all the way to not having scbas in the cab at all um, and i'm sure you guys have seen you know through your research and you know gavin as a, a firefighter that not too hip on change you know the fire service as a whole and so i guess what are your thoughts on that what what are the conversations people are having on you know how do we reduce exposures while still um you know fulfilling our our duty to the public yeah again this is another one of those areas where there's a lot of movement a lot of discussion and and some has research to back it up others are, are people just trying to implement what they think is the best practice what are some common sense approaches to to reducing some of these risks and and i guess first to your point uh, about the resistance to change i'd say the one thing that i'm i'm somewhat um encouraged by is the amount of change that we have seen uh, again, over the last five to 10 years, this is something I think we have seen some very rapid and, and significant and important changes in terms of, of how the fire service um, does their job. Um, and, and again, as I think Matt mentioned earlier, some are on the leading edge and some are on the trailing edge and there's always going to be some resistance. But I think some ways the research that we, we've been doing and, and others around the country is, is with the fire service. So instead of it coming down from an academic body saying that thou shalt do this, the fire service is involved in some of these studies from the very beginning. Uh, we have an advisory board on our series of studies with the firefighters from across the country that have helped to guide. And, and then as we disseminate this work from the very beginning, we allow firefighters in when we were doing some of the data collection back at IFSI, we were streaming that live with fire engineering and, and firehouse magazine so they could, could see that and, and trust where some of the information is coming from. So I do think we're seeing uh, a lot of changes in a lot of different areas, though you know, quite honestly, in many ways, not as much as we might like. And the clean cab is one of those instances where at this point, we don't have any good definitive studies uh, one way or the other. And, and there's a lot of different ways that people are implementing that. You know, one might consider clean cab, just don't bring your dirty gear in there after the firefight. And on the spectrum all the way up to that, no gear is ever allowed into the apparatus cab. They're being designed where not only is uh, are the SCBA in the compartments, but the the gear itself being transported to the scene in those compartments. And so there, there's a huge spectrum, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, on what's being done out there. And I think a lot of that is is departments kind of looking in the mirror and like, okay, what what can we do, um, and what should we do? Uh, and I would say that there's a lot of movement in that that area but it's important also that the training comes along with it that that 
the messaging, the understanding for the firefighters. If you're going to make this change, it is going to change the way that you will don and doff your gear. And it's important that firefighters understand why those changes are being made and train and drill and get that muscle memory. Um, you know, as you know, at two o'clock in the morning, whether it's, you know, stumbling from the bunk room down or uh, the volunteers driving into the station, there's muscle memory that kicks in. And, and if you don't know where those things are, if you can't put the gear on at the, at the scene, as opposed to in the relatively controlled station, that is other risk that that leads to the possibility of other risks coming about. And we need to make sure that, that we can help firefighters to reduce the, the totality of those risks with these changes. So I think that we're going to be in a very different place in another five years on the clean cab concept, as well as a bunch of other mitigation measurements than we are right now. But I am encouraged by the number that are trying to do something, and they may not get it right the first time, but continuing to iterate and learn and update the design of the apparatus and importantly, the policies and training that goes along with it. Gavin, I'm wondering if you could talk um, a little bit on the findings, if, if, if there are any worth mentioning of the cardiovascular stress on firefighters that you guys uh, looked into. Yeah, sure thing. And and this is, we, we could spend a whole, well, a number of hours discussing that. And, and I would say one of the experts that we have, have uh, collaborated with is Denise Smith, um, who is, is really our cardiovascular research expert on, on the team. But just on a high level uh, overview, in, in the study that, that Kenny was just mentioning, uh, one of the pieces that we at, were looking at in addition to the chemical exposures what got in the air and, and into the firefighter's body was the heat stress. Um, looking at the uh, core temperature and, and measuring uh, internal core temperature is a challenging thing. Uh, traditionally, it used to be um, an old rectal thermometer was used in order to, to get a good measurement of, of the core temperature. Uh, that's a challenging measurement itself and has some limitations as well. Uh, and in the studies that, that Kenny was talking about, we're trying to get, you know, over 40 firefighters working in various different roles. So we use an ingestible core temperature capsule. So it looks like a, you know, an Advil gel cap. It's a really cool little device. It costs about $50. It has a temperature measurement and a radio transmitter that, that you swallow that and it gets into, it's important it's in the right location within the digestive tract out of the stomach so that every drink of water doesn't affect it. But once that gets into uh, the right place, then we can get a pretty accurate measurement of, of core temperature. And they, the, the firefighters would just carry a receiver with them that is constantly communicating with that, uh, that, that capsule. And one of the pieces that that allowed us to do in, in the study Kenny mentioned was really to look at the heat stress for firefighters working in these different job assignments. Um, the research in the past focusing on heat stress and cardiovascular strain is really largely focused on fire attack. That's where we see, you know, the firefighters going after the fire. Um, that is the risk that we initially saw because we see the flames, we see the very high uh, heat environment that the firefighters are working in. Um, and, and by measuring the core temperature in that study, we were able to look at those who were on the attack line, those who did the search, as well as outside vent operations and overhaul operations, and, and even those in the incident command. Um, and one of the really unique things that we found in there were the highest core temperatures we measured at the end of this scenario were not 
from the firefighters necessarily who were doing the attack or the search that were inside that building. We were seeing some of the highest core temperatures for the overhaul firefighters, as well as some who were working on the outside vent. And, you know, so you think about that, you know, initially we were a little bit surprised by that, but um, the fire tech, the, the study involved two fully involved compartments within a residential structure, right? So two room and contents fires, relatively bread and butter type fire for, for most structural firefighting, right? So you stretch a line in about 10 minutes, you get the line off of the apparatus, you put water on the fire, you get all the hot spots out, and that can be knocked out in, in about 10 minutes worth of activity. But the overhaul activity in particular, think about how long it takes afterwards to, to get overhaul completed. Um, that was on the order of 20 or some minutes, doing some heavy muscular work, wearing the bunker gear that does not allow dissipation of that core body temperature, that, that heat through the skin and then through evaporation. So we ended up finding higher core temperatures from those who were doing overhaul. And some of that is also translated into some of the other measurements that we have looked at. We've also looked at the change in the blood clotting. And we didn't necessarily see the most significant changes for those who are doing the fire attack. We saw some that were doing some other high-risk activities, such as the outside vent, where their work never exceeded environmental temperatures of above about 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Yet we saw some very high reaction, some some similar level of change in, in the blood monitor, blood measurements that we were collecting. And the thought is that it could be due to some of the, the risk that's involved in there. Some of that fight or flight response, there's a lot of different things that can trigger uh, some of the, the, the changes in the blood that we are measuring. In all of these cases, we saw firefighters from a cardiovascular strain perspective that were hitting near their age predicted max at some point during their firefighting activity. Whether you're pulling that line, whether you're chopping on a roof or whether you're shoveling out a room from a heart rate and a cardiovascular strain perspective, we're getting near to what people can do when they do that job as motivated firefighters. But it's some of these other things like the amount of time and the location where the firefighter's in that can affect some of those risks. So again, thinking about this holistically, one of the, the other, I'd say very important changes the fire service has made in recent years is enforcing SCBA usage during overhaul. You know, when I first started, you know, okay, it's clear the four gas or the six gas meter says we don't have any carbon monoxide and oxygen levels of return, you, you pull the mask off. And now we understand that, well, that doesn't really tell us everything else about what else is in that environment. So we want firefighters to stay on SCBA for a longer period of time. Well, if you do that, now they're carrying more weight. They have more resistance to the their motion and you're going to have a larger increase in, in heat stress for those firefighters as well. So another thing to be aware of, we will likely reduce those inhalation exposures with SCBA usage during overhaul, but you also need to make sure that we're taking care of the individuals so we don't increase that thermal and cardiovascular strain beyond a point where that now becomes an issue. So how do you resource that? How do you bring enough people to the scene that the person who is on the line is not also the person that's there pulling down ceiling for you know, the, the hours afterwards so that you can get them 
into an area where those initial firefighters can get their skin cleaned, can go to rehab, can get rehydrated, and then we can get a fresh crew in to do overhaul. And maybe another crew comes in and relieves them, depending on what kind of stress we have. So again, by looking at this when in a holistic perspective, we're able to kind of see that interplay between how some of these intervention methods might uh, impact different aspects of the fire service. Yeah, you bring up a great point about manpower and manpower standard. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier said than done, but uh, hey, Absolutely. How, about, how about you bring the cavalry, you know, a, a few more soldiers to the fight, you know, so that so we can switch these folks out on a more frequent basis so that they're not uh, overexerted. Um, but, you know, based on everything that you said, uh, of course, um, one of the biggest control measures is, is taking care of your, your own physical fitness. You know, that would be a, that would probably be one of the easier ones that you can control as an individual. Then of course, the next thing would be, in my opinion, anyways, is kind of the ergonomic or the, the design of gear specifically, you know, in addition to more manpower, of course, um, the design of the gear, it sounds like it would probably be, uh, a big help, you know, if it were thinner, but still as protective and, and, uh, you know, ergonomically, you know, suitable for what we do. Um, well, yeah, I wanted I to get it. The, so go ahead, Chris. Sorry. I think of the, the overweight firefighter, right. Who's, who's resting heart rates, maybe 90 beats per minute. And now mm-hmm. the fire run comes out and they spike up to 130 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. And now putting their gear on and stretching a line and, mm-hmm. and forcing the front door. They're at the, their max heart rate before the work's right. begun. Right. And, now we're asking that firefighter to keep their SCBA on, you know, throughout the duration of the incident, mm-hmm. you know, that, that screams the importance of, mm-hmm. um, of manpower to your point, And especially mm-hmm. a physical fitness where mm-hmm. that way you're not behind the power curve and a liability to your crew and the, the people that were there to, to help protect before the work's even started. Yeah, you're already in the red before you even show up on scene. <laughs> And, and I can say from my perspective, I'm sure uh, Chris and Gavin, same thing. I mean, you know, when you get all the routine calls uh, throughout the day, but when the real one comes through, you're already a bit uh, more juiced than maybe you normally would be. Uh, heart rate's going to be much, much more elevated. You're, you're, you know, a lot of those, you know, different stressor hormones are, are dumping into your blood and it's in, increasing your heart rate. So you're already kind of setting yourself up for a disadvantage and then you're going to put all this heavy gear on and do something stressful where somebody's life is potentially on the line. Um, all these different variables. Yeah. If you're out of shape, um, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage. Um, I'd like to get in a little bit of practical solutions, you know, as we close this out, we get close to closing out at least. I, I don't want to uh, take too much of your time. Um, I like to end conversations like this on like, what can we do, right? What can departments do right now? You know, we've, we've talked about a lot of things and during our conversation, we've talked about some things that you can do like fitness and, um, you know, cleaning your gear and and such. Um, what are you guys' opinions on, on what we can do now in terms of, uh, cleaning gear, uh, maybe procedural things that we could do? Yeah, I mean, I can I can speak a little bit to um, you know the keeping gear clean. Um, you know, a, a lot of the research we did has looked at uh, gross on scene decon um, and the importance of using um, you know some sort of detergent or surfactant um, 
in addition to water. Uh, you know, there, there have been a few studies that have looked at water only decon as not being uh, very effective. And um, you just, you've got to have that detergent to be able to remove and liberate some of those fat soluble compounds like um, the PAHs. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the research that we've done has really tried to focus on um, control measures that are, that are practical, that could be implemented without um, expending a, a ton of resources. Um, you know, decon would be one of those, the skin cleansing wipes would be another, um, hood exchange programs, um, you know, rehabbing away from your off-gassing gear or bagging gear. I mean, all of those kinds of controls, you know, they're not necessarily super expensive. I understand, you know, having a second set of gear um, could be, um, and, you know, some, some departments uh, are a little bit more strained for resources than others. But we really wanted to focus on um, measures that could be implemented without costing a fortune, you know, something that could be done, um, you know, relatively quickly. And I think that, you know, hopefully that is one reason we're seeing some change in the fire service. Um, and then, you know, Gavin kind of touched on it a little bit. I mean, you know, my focus is uh, uh, the cancer risk and exposure is definitely, um, you know, one piece of that uh, puzzle that might be contributing to the cancer risk. But, you know, lifestyle is another. Um, and it's, you know, really important that firefighters are, are taking care of themselves and taking care of each other. I think it's a unique occupation because you, you work, train, and, and even live together in some respect. And so you can sort of hold each other accountable, um, you know, and, and try to make choices that are gonna be best for your health, not just today, today but long-term. Um, so I, I just don't want that to get lost when we talk about, um, you know, cancer prevention. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think one of the, one of the most important things to making this um, usable is to develop approaches, techniques that that can fit the resources that are are available. Um, that way, we can actually implement some of these things. Um, you can actually scale um, decon and some of the skin cleansing wipes to to the incidents and, and the capabilities that you have. Um, so it, it's important to be able to put those things into place with a, a realistic expectation of what you can and cannot do. Uh, for a small incident, you can set up a smaller decontamination line. You can scale that up and, and some large departments actually have uh, large apparatus and rigs that will come out and support their decontamination approaches. But the resources have to be there. The policies have to be there to help support this and the understanding of, of the holistic risks that are out there. You don't want to have someone sitting in a, a line for 30 minutes to get decontaminated if it's 95 degrees outside and they can't get out of their bunker gear because we know we want to help them to, to reduce some of that heat stress. If you're doing decontamination in, in freezing temperatures, it can be done and, and we have done it. But it's important to also realize that you know, that's going to create ice and there's now slip and fall risk. So having something available there for uh, ice melt, having warming stations available there for the, the firefighters who are being decontaminated, but also those who are doing the decon or the preliminary exposure reduction. Those are all things that are important 
for uh, for us to consider at the beginning, and, and that that makes it viable uh, and and possible for this to be implemented on on the fire ground itself. Um, and I'd say the other thing that that we can really do to help is to implement a lot of these control measures during training. Um, you know, in some of our, our field data collection scenarios for, for FSRI, we've worked with a lot of local departments uh, and, and many who had never done uh, decon or preliminary exposure reduction before. And this is their first opportunity to do so. And, and as we helped to train them as they were deconning us, we, we noticed how much uh, better they became, how much more efficient they were at the technique just by practicing it. So we need to think about some of these industrial hygiene measures as things that need to be practiced, need to be trained on, just like using any other tool that we might have on the far ground itself. I think that's a great, great challenge for any firefighter listening to this episode is to take a serious look in the mirror and, and ask yourself if you're controlling everything that can be controlled when it comes to cancer prevention. I feel like my experience has been that some firefighters will um, kind of throw any initiative, you know, out the window because they disagree with, um, you know, engineers being on SCBA, right? That seems crazy to a lot of us or I'm not having SCBAs in the cab. And I can totally relate to that. Like I, my family lives in my fire department's first due. And I, I think if, you know, engine three were to pull up to my house on fire, and have to take 20 seconds to put their gear on, we're going to have issues, you know, because we all know the the impact of those 20 seconds. But after that, that kind of time sensitive part of the incident is over. Are you doing everything within your control to fulfill your obligation to yourself and your family when it comes to deconning at the scene and Mm -hmm. to washing your gear and to taking a shower and, cleaning your tools and the SCBA and all that stuff. When you get back to the station, you know, if you're you know on the back step or if, if you're the, in a leadership position on your fire department, are you working to get your, your firefighters two sets of gear and particulate hoods and our systems in place to uh, ensure everybody can wash their gear in a timely ma- manner after a fire, are we controlling everything that we can possibly control to, uh, to prevent cancer for our people. So I uh, I found the name of the uh, the individual I was talking about earlier. His name is Jeff Stoll. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard that name before. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jeff has been um, you know, for decades one of the leading experts in in firefighting PPE. Um, so he he, were, he he runs International Personal Protection, um, mm-hmm. but has has been uh, involved I think with every major U.S. Uh, manufacturer in terms of helping to understand their uh, designs and those sorts of things, but also, you know, one of the driving forces in a lot of the, uh, the standards, the, the NFPA standards, uh, in particular, he sits on, I think he sits on the correlating committee, but, but yeah, he's, he's one of those resources that, uh, you know, when he speaks about PPE, he is, you know, one of the foremost experts in it. Um, and had, had fortune to, to work with him on, on a few projects, actually one of our, our very first projects, um, Back when uh, Morning Pride, before they became part of Honeywell, um, they introduced us to him. And um, he really has an incredible mind and eye for uh, how gear works. Yeah, I, I sat through an hour-long webinar that I think um, 
oh, what was it? Was it fire engineering? Fire, it might have been fire engineering, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, Lexapol, I think, may have hosted it, potentially. Okay. They host a whole lot of stuff. But, yeah. yeah. It was just, like, completely eye-opening, you know. Like, yeah. It uh, really makes you consider, you know, it's how you think about the fire service and sign of the te- technologies and like what other things are, are out there. What, what are other people thinking about? Cause mm-hmm. the stuff he was talking about with PPE is just kind of blowing your mind a little bit. Yeah. He, he knows more about PPE than I think uh, it, almost anyone else. Mm. Um, so I, I, I've always enjoyed learning from him and um, he's done a lot of research. He, he kind of led the, uh, how clean is clean project that uh, NFPA, the fire protection research foundation, um, was was the head of that, but he was the um, the scientific lead on that work uh, for a number of years. And, and you know, he does PPE outside of just fire service. You're looking at or out, outside of firefighting, you know, including hazmat and technical rescue and other things like that. So, excellent. Yeah, Kenny, if if you don't mind, do you have an opportunity to talk about the National Firefighter Registry? So. You know, I think it's important to kind of frame the discussion. So, you know, we've talked today about how, you know, several studies have shown that firefighters have an increased risk of cancer. Um, but, you know, studies have firefighters from large municipal departments who decades ago. And the study populations consisted mostly of white males. Um, so, unfortunately, that doesn't accurately reflect today's fire service, which of course includes women and minorities and firefighters and rural and volunteer departments, um, as well as numerous subspecialties of the fire service, including wildland firefighters and fire cause investigators and trainers. So we don't fully understand the cancer risk for all those different groups of firefighters or how the cancer risk is associated with specific workplace factors and how that risk has changed over time. So the National Firefighter Registry or NFR, um, which I'm proud to lead, um, will really try to address those knowledge gaps by allowing firefighters all over the country to sign themselves up and provide basic information about their job as a firefighter so that we can then follow them over time to see how they, you know, how they do, God forbid, if they ever develop cancer, Um, and what type of cancer, and then assess how those cancers are associated with their job. So any firefighter, active or retired, career volunteer, and those with or without cancer will be encouraged to join the NFR uh, launch. And we're optimistic that we'll be able to launch the enrollment system in the spring or summer of 2022. So it's not that far away. Um, And your listeners can, of course, learn more by visiting our website, which is www.cdc.gov forward slash NFR. Our goal is to register 200,000 firefighters with various backgrounds and experiences, which will make the NFR the largest and most diverse firefighter registry ever constructed. Um, So if we're successful, um, we should be able to dramatically improve our understanding of firefighters' cancer risk including what factors modify or lessen that risk. Um, and you know, the, the ultimate goal is to reduce cancer in the fire service. So we wanna provide more information, more evidence to really support a lot of the control interventions that we talked about today. Um, so obviously a project like this doesn't happen overnight. Um, there's been a lot of planning and security measures that have gone into it. 
um, but we're eager to get started soon. So, uh, you know, I know we were talking about some things that firefighters can do. And, and I would say that one thing that firefighters can do um, is, you know, once we launch the NFR, um, take 30 minutes. That's, that's about how long a show on Netflix lasts, right? <laughs> so take 30 minutes and sign up for the NFR when we, when we launch. And I think it could make a big difference, especially for future generations of firefighters. Yeah, we'll certainly do our part over here. I mean, we have a handful of followers, nothing crazy, but uh, you know, we'll definitely get the message out in the uh, Air Force Fire Protection Enterprise um, and, and a little bit of the DOD. Um, any of you gentlemen have anything else you'd like to add? Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'd just like to reinforce what Kenny said. I think one of the most important projects in, in the fire service is, is the NFR. And anyone who can spend the 30 minutes to sign up, it'll, it'll make a huge impact for the fire service, for fire research, and importantly, that, that future generation. So thank you all, and thank you, Kenny, for, for leading that project. Well, again, thank you, Teach. Thank you. For the work that Appreciate you Appreciate it. And uh, you, you coming on uh, and talking to us all about it. Uh, it was uh, some eye-opening stuff, some really good information. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more commentary articles and episodes just like this regularly posted on our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. And on LinkedIn and Instagram at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow to stay plugged into every new episode. And please share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the firehouse. This is Matt Wilson with co-host Chris Boykley and guests Dr. Kenny Fent and Dr. Gavin Horn. Until next time, stay safe.